my two dads. Won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about The, the Wiz. Wiz. He's on down, he's on down the road. He's on down, he's on It's so down hard for me every time I hear them go, we got to talk to The Wiz, that I just think of like Cheese Wiz. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's it's uh, I really thought they would start calling him the wizard or something at one point, but no. He's yeah. the whiz, baby. He's the whiz. You know, I'm starting to realize that <laughs> as a young boy, I had really bad taste in movies. <laughs> uh, uh, I, and I'm starting to agree with you, Jim. Hey, no, look. When I was a little boy, I liked to escape. So the more yeah. crazy worlds I could go into or... You know, yeah, yeah. the weirder, the better. And this movie I really enjoyed as a child. It's just, I, <laughs> I, I loved Michael Jackson. I thought he was, I didn't know he, of oh, Michael Jackson, right, right. but I loved him in this movie. I was already a huge fan of Nipsey Russell from game yeah, shows yeah. and talk shows. And Nipsey yeah. was just all over the place. He was always on sitcoms and stuff. Um, and Richard Pryor, you well, know? Yeah, yeah. But... Now that I'm older and watching it, I still enjoyed it. I still really enjoyed it. It's visually very appealing. It's really cool looking. But, yeah. One, they probably should have got an African-American director to direct it. Or somebody with musical experience. Or two. (laughs) Or at least somebody who has some. Yeah, or both. It's just... (laughs) Yeah, it's uh here's so my caveat is that I am not a musical person, uh, which is the irony is that we're doing an entire month on musicals. Uh, there's only one musical I'm really into, and we're going to cover it at the end of the month. But uh, I'd never seen The Wiz. Yeah, uh, I knew of it, and I knew what it was about. Um, I don't think I'd ever actually heard any music from the movie. You had to have heard "Ease on, on Down the Road." Yeah, but I didn't know that was from this movie. Like I didn't associate the two. Right. Uh, and I gotta say. <sighs> It's, it's it's not a good movie. Now oh, come on, <laughs> it's not a good movie. There's uh there are bits of a good movie in that movie. Agreed. Michael Jackson for one. Nipsey Russell I think is great. The supporting cast, the lion, the guy Ted plays Ross the is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, Mabel King is unreal. Yeah. She is so good as yeah. uh, the she wicked played. witch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know her movements. She just commanded that area. The problem is, is whomever. Was the choreographer didn't get enough time, probably, and because yeah. Sidney Lumet's just like, all right, we'll just do it all in a long shot. We'll do it all in one shot, and we'll do some inserts. But the problem is, it's not precise. No. It's so messy. It's it so is. the dancing is really impressive, but there everybody is on their own timing. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. that was a choice to make it seem sloppy or make it seem I, more like maybe, natural. Maybe it wasn't edited well. Maybe they they maybe well, Sydney Lumet shot the stuff and it just wasn't edited well. Dude, there's no editing people into sync. <laughs> you got to well, at least redo it if everybody is flipping when there should be flooping and well, jipping when they should be jipping. The problem with having these five minute long takes of giant dancing sequences it just shows the the messiness and really great dancing and really great. Some great music and <laughs> a great cast. And it's funny, you know, when watching that as a kid, I had it never occurred to me that it was an all black cast. 
Right, right. It was just a cool movie. It was a movie. And yeah. there was a lot of stuff in that movie that really freaked me out as a kid. Oh, yeah. Those puppets that grew. Oh, my God. That was so weird. And then the, the columns that come alive. Yeah. And, like, oh, and that, the trash cans with the teeth. It's too real, man. There was a bunch of really <laughs> whacked out stuff that creeped me out as a kid. And watching it again, I was like, oh, man, I totally remember those parts. Yeah. Because they stuck with me. But I'm not a huge musical fan either. Uh, I, I do. I don't dislike them. I think as much as you, I, I, yeah. My main issue with musicals is that why do you have to sing something when you can just say it? Well, Adam. Okay. But that's, okay. You're just, I'm just, okay. I'm being honest. I get you, but you know, it's, that's, you know, that's just basically saying I fundamentally don't understand musicals. I get that. I get it. Uh, I like, I, I always enjoyed Musical episodes, Star Trek, Strange New Worlds just did a musical oh, episode yeah. that was really fun. Buffy, the Vampire Slayer famously did well, a really great... But these things these things are like being worked into the story. Right. It's like they have to sing because there's a spell sure. or there's a whatever. Yes. They're not... Annie M just suddenly singing at the table. Like, well, a lot of people sing. <laughs> I know. At, at, I get it. Look, when I, they eat uh, turkey and ham. <laughs> I, I have a lot of friends that are musical theater people... And they love musicals, and I literally don't understand why. There's but a few. I like Guys and Dolls. I thought that was a cool musical because it when I was a kid because it had Brando and yeah and Sinatra. Um, I mean, some of the older stuff is really great. Like I really love White Christmas. It's sure. a great movie. Grease. We're gonna come up. We're gonna I, do Grease. Grease is, is definitely my one. favorite of the bunch. Um, well, you haven't seen uh, <laughs> Sergeant <laughs> Pepper's yet, or Xanadu. That's true. Two real big stinkers. Oh man, I am so so curious. To see Sergeant Pepper's again because I love that movie yeah, as a kid, yeah. and I haven't seen it since I was probably eight. It's uh, it's really weird having gone through uh, most of these scripts already. That how weirdly connected they all are. Oh yeah, it's really strange. Well, because musical theater is a small, <laughs> it's a very small world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm, I will stop ragging on musicals. Well, okay, I promise. we're, we're going to get it out of the way. You do not like musical theater. I don't particularly like musical theater, but uh, I've done it. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah, directed it. You directed, directed it. Yeah, directed you actually did a great job. That was, that was a great musical. That was, it was done great, really well. Not because of me, but it was it, written really well. It was by, written well, had a good book, good lyrics. Yeah. It was done very well. By, uh, what's his name? Axelrod. Yeah. And uh, his wife. I don't remember. And uh, they were so cool. And they, they did such a good job. The play is called Emperor Norton. If, uh, the musical, if you ever have a chance to see it, it's San so, Francisco based. So good. Yeah. You got. Uh, an emperor, you got a couple of dogs, you got Mark Twain. What else could you want? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, those kind of, you know, they're fun. And I think it's, I think it definitely lends itself more to the stage. Like, I, I, yeah, I've seen more musicals on stage than I have movie, movie adaptations. Yeah, same, same. Um, you know, and it's fun. It's fun. It's a lot of energy. You know, yeah. I like dancing, I like the energy of musicals. Uh, I thought this movie had a lot of energy and it had a lot of talent in it. Yeah. I just think that it was like a lot of the movies this month, there were a lot of really wrong and bad choices. Made. <laughs> that is true. That is you true. Know? A lot and, of head scratching choices. And this is a good example month of when you zig instead of zagging, it can really? put a hitch in your wagon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. We're getting a shirt printed with that on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. All right. Take yourself back to 1978. Yeah. February 5th to the 7th, the northeastern United States blizzard of 1978 hits the New England region and the New York metropolitan area, killing about 100 people and causing $520 million in damage. It's a lot. 
Uh, they actually filmed the opening sequence during that blizzard. Oh, wow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. August, August 17th, uh, Double Eagle 2 becomes the first balloon to successfully cross the Atlantic Ocean, flying from Presque Isle, Maine to Miseray, France. Whatever you do, don't ask about Single Eagle 1, because <laughs> whew, that's a tragedy. Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, October 16th, Pope John Paul II succeeds Pope John Paul I as the 264th Pope, resulting in the first year of three popes since 1605. Yeah, another time where the sequel was not as good as the original. <laughs> Well, the original didn't last very long. That's John, why. <laughs> John Paul I died after 33 days into his papacy. Uh, pope John Paul II is the first Pol- Polish pope in history and the first non-Italian pope since Pope Adrian VI, uh, who became the pope in 1522. Interesting. Uh, so many Polish jokes back yeah. then. Because oh, yeah. it was a very uh, Polak joke time. I, yeah. I, I'm sorry to say it like that, but, you know, as, as the vernacular, Polak jokes right. were very popular. They were mean and cruel, and it didn't make any sense. I don't know why everybody made Polish people the brunt of... Well, they had to... I mean, it, it, there were Polak jokes long before yeah. that. Started in World War II, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Nazis. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, man. It, now they're like stupid people jokes instead of the uh, Polak jokes. But right, it was like, right. It was crazy. It's funny now because Poland is becoming one of the best places to live now. Well, it's because people stopped telling the jokes. <laughs> Everyone stopped. The Polish yeah. stopped being angry all the time. Yes, I'd be angry, too, if I was the, you know, the Polak jokes were lazy yeah. jokes. I just find the fact that there have been so many popes fascinating. There's uh, a lot of popes. And the way they get the pope is weird, too, by the and way. The, uh, yes. Agreed. You know, you like got to look for the pope smoke. You know? <laughs> it's got to be a certain yeah, color. Oh, it's a black color. smoke. We can't pick it up. We ain't a pick it up. But we got a white smoke. We pick it up. Uh, we pick it up for you. Uh, anyway, uh, you wanted a pope, we pick it up. Pope. <laughs> October twenty fourth, the Wiz is released in theaters. Ease on down the road. Uh, yeah, you gotta ease on down the road. Uh, so the Wiz is based off the musical The Wiz, the Super Soul musical Wonderful Wizard of Oz, a retelling of L. Frank Baum's children's novel The Wonderful Wizard of Oz that was released in nineteen hundred. Yeah. It's a while ago. It was a long time ago. It retells the story in the context of contemporary African-American culture. It actually opened in Baltimore in October 1974 and then moved to Broadway at the Majestic Theater in January of 1975. Oh, yeah. After drawing mixed critical reviews, producer Ken Harper considered closing the musical after its Broadway opening night. No! Yeah. Part of its turnaround success was due to a publicity campaign that included a TV commercial featuring the cast singing Ease On Down the Road, a song that proved so popular that it was released as a single recorded by the disco group Consumer Rapport. Yeah, the Consumer Rapport. Not report. (laughs) No. Rapport. Rapport. Yeah, Yeah. they got a lot of rapport. Clever! Yeah. Too clever by half. Mm-hmm. But the 1975 Broadway production won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Nice. It was an early example of Broadway's mainstream acceptance of works with an all-black cast. Yeah, very cool. Very cool idea. Yeah. And the Broadway show is very different from the movie. Yes. And it is much better. Yeah, I would, I would like to see a, the Broadway show, for sure. Uh, a national tour was launched in 1976. The Broadway production moved to the Broadway Theater in May of 1977 and closed in January of 1979 after four years and 1,672 performances. A good run. That's a long run. Due to the success of the Broadway musical, a feature film was inevitable. The film rights were acquired by Barry Gordy Jr. of Motown Productions in 1977. Motown Productions had a series of successful TV specials featuring Diana Ross, The Temptations, and Smokey Robinson. 
The Wiz was the eighth feature film produced by Motown Productions. Other productions included Lady Sings the Blues in 1972, a biopic of Billie Holiday starring Diana Ross in her feature film debut as Billie Holiday, along with Billy D. Williams, Richard Pryor, James T. Callahan, and Scatman Crothers. And Chewbacca. Uh, Chewbacca. <laughs> Chewbacca. Um, that was a good movie. It oh, was yeah? good. I've yeah. never seen it. No, it, it, was, uh, it was a really well-done biopic. And another movie... All of these early movies with Richard Pryor, and I've seen all of these, he's such a good actor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such a good actor. Oh, yeah. And uh, even he, in this. He was, he was great in The Wiz. Yeah. Like, when they finally catch him, and he's just like, please, please help me. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's he's crying. He's just, so, he's it's just so layered immediately. He's yeah. got such soulful eyes. He's got... Yeah. S- th- uh, those eyes have seen so much pain and misery yes. Yes. and suffering and joy, but he's got... Just some of the most soulful eyes in the business. Yeah. That guy really so good. Such an underrated actor. Uh, so the movie was nominated for five Academy Awards in 1973, including Best Actress in the Leading Role for Diana Ross. Unfortunately, it won none of them. Racists. Wow. I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know who it was in the won, 70s. So I don't, yeah. Uh, Mahogany was a movie from 1975, also starring Diana Ross as a struggling fashion design student who rises to become a popular fashion designer in Rome. The soundtrack included the single theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going To? Do you know where you're going to? Do you know, know that life is showing I you? I literally don't think I've ever Do heard that. Do you know? Uh, it actually peaked at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in January 1976 and was nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. Yeah, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't much of a banger, but it was a pretty good song. <laughs> the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings was released in 1976. Oh, such a tot, tot. Title. It had so many people in it. Uh, it's a great movie, by the way. Directed by John Batham and starring Billy Dee Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. It was about a team of enterprising ex-Negro League baseball players in the era of racial segregation. It was really fun. Yeah. Uh, Scott Joplin in 1977, a biopic about Joplin starring Billy Dee Williams as Scott Joplin. It was supposed to be Motown Productions' first foray into TV movies, but the studio thought it had box office potential and was given a theatrical release. Man, everything stars either Diana Ross, Billy Dee Williams, or Richard Pryor, or all of them. It was a tight-knit community at Motown yeah, Productions. Yeah, uh, Big Time in 1977 as well. The film was scored by Smokey Robinson, leading to a successful soundtrack release. Uh, thank God It's Friday in 1978. Yeah, Thank God It's Friday! Uh, produced at the height of the disco craze, the film features the Commodores performing Too Hot to Trot and Donna Summer performing Last Dance. Last Dance for Love, Last Chance. That's what they play at weddings all the time, is the Last Dance. Oh. Uh, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1978. The film features an early performance by Jeff Goldblum and the first major screen appearance by Deborah Winger. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Almost Summer in 1978, it's the only Motown theatrical feature not to center on African-American characters. Set in a generic Southern California high school, the plot revolves around a student council election that stirs up assorted petty jealousies among various characters. Though not successful at the box office, the film has since acquired a certain degree of historical importance due to being a precursor of the distinctive youth genre films that followed, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and The Breakfast Club. Uh, the only film that Motown Productions would produce after The Wiz was The Last Dragon in 1985. Yeah. One of my favorite movies of all time. It's a good movie. I mean, it's, it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie, but, but it, is, it is fun to watch. Yeah. No, it was definitely unique. Upon purchase of the film rights, Gordy signed on Stephanie Mills, the 17-year-old wunderkind who had starred as Dorothy in the Broadway production to reprise her role for the film. Great. He also signed John Batham to direct, who had worked with Gordy previously. 
Uh, Batam had just come off directing the smash hit Saturday Night Fever. Gordy had given Batam his first feature directing job with the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings in 1976. All right. Okay. That works. Yeah. Diana Ross really wanted to play the lead, so she asked Gordy if she could be cast as Dorothy, but he declined, saying that Ross, then 33 years old, was too old for the role. Ross went around Gordy and convinced Motown Productions executive producer Rob Cohen to cast her. Uh. Cohen had been having troubles finding funding due to there not being a name lead, so he was very... Um, Business-like, Adam? Word, uh, uh, yeah, agreeable to her joining amenable. the cast. Yeah, amenable? Amenable, thank you. That's the word I was looking for, amenable. Pauline Kael described Ross's efforts to get the film into production as... Perhaps the strongest example of sheer will in film history. Though 20th Century Fox had financially backed the stage musical, they ended up exercising their first refusal rights to the film production, which gave Universal an opening to finance the film. With Diana Ross attached, Universal was very excited to make the movie. Universal was so excited about the film's prospects that they did not set a budget for production. First wrong move. Do you think that bit them in the ass? <laughs> After filmmaker John Badham learned that Ross was cast as Dorothy, he decided not to direct. Yeah. Of his decision not to direct The Wiz, Badham recalled telling Cohen that he thought Ross was... A wonderful singer. She's a terrific actress and a great dancer. But she's not this character. She's not the little six-year-old girl Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, he's not wrong. No, she's a 33-year-old woman. <laughs> Cohen replaced Badham with Sidney Lumet. Mm. Uh, Lumet's hiring was met with skepticism as he was known as a dramatic filmmaker with no previous musical directing experience. Up to this point, Lumet had been nominated for three Academy Awards for directing, uh, 12 Angry Men in 1957, Dog Day Afternoon in 1975, and Network in 1976. All amazing movies, but none of them are proof that he could direct a musical. No. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. He'll be nominated again for Best Director for The Verdict in 1982 and won for Best Adapted Screenplay for Prince of the City in 1981. Both great movies, especially uh, The Verdict. I, yeah, oh, yeah. He would win none of them, eventually being given an honorary Academy Award in 2004. Yeah, the booby prize. Yeah, it's, 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 terrible, terrible slight by the Academy. I would not take that. I would not take the Irvin Thalberg <laughs> Award. I would not take any of these booby awards. Be like, F you. You should have given it to me when I was in my prime. I'm not going to wheel my old ass up here with my oxygen tank and have somebody patronize me by giving me some phony baloney booby prize Oscar. Take that, Academy. If you're thinking about giving me the Thalberg Award, you could forget it. Despite not having musical experience, Lumet was very versed in adapting stage plays into successful films. Uh, the Fugitive Kind in 1959, starring Marlon Brando, Joanne Woodward, and Anne Magnani, based on the Tennessee Williams play Orpheus Descending. Again, great, but not a musical. <laughs> I like, mean, adapting I stage plays... Look, adapting stage plays is very difficult. Very, honestly... There aren't a lot of stage plays turned into movies that are that great because the stage and film are very two different things. Yeah. And a lot of times they don't translate. People, people get too precious with the stage play. And right. And it becomes too much like a stage play on screen. Right. And then they get the actors who are in the stage play and, and they're still acting like they're on the stage instead of in a movie and it's all too big. I'm looking at you, Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> he later directed a live television version of Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh, which was followed by his film A View from the Bridge in 1962, another psychological drama from the play written by Arthur Miller. Everything here just screams the whiz to me. It does. Uh, this was followed by another Eugene O'Neill play, Long Day's Journey to Night, also in 1962 with Catherine Hepburn, gaining an Oscar nomination for her performance as a drug-addicted housewife. Nice. Uh, the four principal actors swept the acting awards at 1962 Cannes Film Festival. It's also voted one of the year's 10 best films by the New York Times. Great movie. 
Uh, he would also adapt Chekhov's Seagull in 1968. Not to be confused with Jonathan Livingston's Seagull, which was very big in the 70s. <laughs> Chekhov's the Seagull should not be big anywhere. Well, I'm just not a fan of the play. I got a lot of issues with Chekhov. Yes. Very wordy and long and depressing. Yeah, everybody has 18 names. Yeah, it's, it's confusing. Leave it to Russia, people. <laughs> Last of the Mobile Hot Shots in 1970, based on the Tennessee Williams play The Seven Descents of Myrtle. Mm. Uh, Child's Play in 1972, based on the Robert Morasco play. Chucky! Uh, not Chucky. No Chucky! It <laughs> would be great, though, but no, yeah, no Chucky. No Little pre-Chucky. Pre-Chucky! Uh, the Offense in 1973, starring Sean Connery, based on the stage play The Story of Yours by John Hopkins. A movie that we have to do. We're going to have to cover it. It looks so good. We keep talking about it. I know. It keeps coming up. Uh, in Equus in 1977, based off the play of the same name. Equus! About a horse and a naked man. Cohen hired Joel Schumacher to write the script for the adaptation. Interesting. Another person that just screams musical. He actually does. <laughs> in, in 1974. <laughs> Did you see Batman and Robin? Okay, but this is all before that. Right. In 1974, Schumacher and Howard Rosenman wrote the script for Sparkle, released in 1976. Yeah. Uh, it was a plot. The plot was inspired by the history of the Supremes. Sparkle is a period film set in Harlem, New York during the late 1950s and early 1960s. See, it's musical. Yeah, I mean, yes. Schumacher's original plan for the film was for the film to be a black gone with the wind, but had to be toned down due to the limit, limited budget given to the production by Warner Brothers. The Wiz? Uh, no, this was for Sparkle. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. I don't know. I, I want to sit in a room with Joel Schumacher and go, what do you mean black gone with the wind? I don't understand. I just think he meant a big, sweeping spectacle, you know, epic. Okay. Uh, according to Schumacher, the film represented his personal fascination with Jesse Jackson, Angela Davis, Tammy Terrell, and Diana Ross. The strength of the script led him to being selected to write Car Wash, which starred... Franklin A.J., Bill Duke, George Carlin, Erwin Corey, Ivan Dixon, Antonio Vargas, Jack Kehoe, Clarence Muse, Lorraine Gray, The Pointer Sisters, Richard Pryor, and Garrett Morris of Saturday Night Live. Uh, originally conceived as a musical, Car Wash is an episodic comedy about a day in the lives of a close-knit group of employees at a Los Angeles, California car wash. Oh, I love that movie. So yeah. I've never seen it. I've yeah. seen parts of it, but I've never seen it. We're going to do it. It's okay. definitely a doer because uh, there's a lot. We'll do like used cars, car wash, and another ridiculous another car comedy. Movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Car Wash soundtrack. Carmody. Carmody. It'll be our Carmody month. Oh, God. I hate us. I, I hate everything about it. The Car Wash soundtrack recorded by Rose Royce was a major success, yielding three Billboard R&B top ten singles. Car Wash, I Want to Get Next to You, and, and I'm Going Down. Yeah, baby. <laughs> the title track, written and produced by Norman Whitfield, was a number one hit and was one of the biggest hit singles of the disco era. Meanwhile, the Pointer Sisters' You Gotta Believe, which the group performed during their cameo in the film, was a top 20 R&B hit. The Car Wash soundtrack won a 1977 Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack Album. Nice. It deserved it. Yeah. The success of Car Wash led to Schumacher being selected to write the screenplay for The Wiz. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joel Schumacher's script was influenced by Werner Erhard's er wow Werner Erhard's teachings and his Erhard seminars training movement, also known as EST or EST. Yeah, EST. As both Schumacher and Ross were very enamored of Werner Erhard. God, Erhard seminars training. Okay, oh, sorry. I just want to say something first about Werner Erhard and EST, and. I know we're going to get into it. I know we're going to get into it versus Scientology. But the reason, again, the reason why this was so popular is it was another, just like Scientology, instead of other 
religions or cults or whatever you want to call them, which are basically doing good works for other people, these were all about self-improvement, self-interest, all about yeah. you being a better person for you. Yeah. There's not a lot of like – it's why this stuff is so appealing to the Hollywood elite and such is because it just fuels their ego and makes it all about them right. and how great they are. Sure. I'm sure. looking at you, Diana Ross. Joel Schumacher. And Joel Schumacher. Uh, Erhard Seminars Training was an organization founded by Werner Erhard in 1971 that offered a two-weekend, six-day, six 60-hour course known officially as the EST Standard Training, meaning it was the Erhard Seminars Training Standard Training. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, the purpose of the training is to help one to recognize that the situations which seem to be holding them back in life are working themselves out within the process of life itself. Huh. It's just sit back and do nothing. It's fine. And you need 10 hours a day for six days to learn this? Apparently. It's, this, is, this is how they get you, Adam. They get you in there for 10 hours. They don't give you any food or anything, and then you become completely... <laughs> <laughs> the seminar aimed to... Transform one's ability to experience living so that the situations one had been trying to change or had been putting up with clear up just in the process of life itself. It really sounds like they're just kind of saying, ignore it, and it'll work itself out. Yeah, that works really well. That works. It's basically how guys think of healthcare. <laughs> if I just ignore it, it'll go away. Yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes it does, Jim. Sometimes it does, Adam. Yeah. But not always. But not usually. <laughs> no. Uh, S seminars operated from late 71 to late 1984. As S grew, so did criticism of it. In 1977, the film Semi-Tough, which parodied the then-popular course, was released. Oh, such a fun movie. Have you seen Semi-Tough? No, no, but I honestly need to, knowing it's a parody of the EST standard training. Well, it's, it's, it's a comedy that takes place in NFL football. But oh, some of it? the guys... Oh, are they into the S? Into, take the, or yeah. whatever. It's, it's, yeah. it's basically a, a parody of football players. Oh. Okay. You know, and, and it's a really fun movie. Various critics accused Est of mind control or of forming an authoritarian army, which some labeled a cult. Yeah. Uh, as it grew, Est became a target of a smear campaign by the Church of Scientology. Yeah, don't steal our mind control. <laughs> don't you dare say Thetan. Thetas. Thetans. <laughs> This campaign spanned several years. The smear campaign involved hiring personal investigators to spy on Erhard, recruiting Scientologists to covertly enroll in and disrupt S courses, and compiling information from disgruntled former S participants, which could be used to discredit Est. The stupidest, most ridiculous rivalry ever. I want to see a movie based on this yes. rivalry. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's get Seth Rogen and Adam Goldberg to make it, because it go. definitely needs that sense of absurdity uh scientology founder l ron hubbard who died in 86 believed that Earhart had copied scientology Earhart, you're copying the scientology now where's all my Ooh, i'm gonna get on a ship where's all my ship sleeves <laughs> Earhart disputed this saying that est was essentially different despite some similarities yeah you know what they're both bunk you really know you're doing something right when the church in scientology goes why are you copying everything we're doing why are you copying us yeah. I'm sorry. The suckers are ours. Yes, come on. Yeah. You better not talk about UFOs or planets. Yeah, well. Or thetans. <laughs> you know, we're going to take a test. Put your hands on these joysticks and it'll tell you how many thetans you have. <sighs> how much money you're going to have to spend to get clear. Well, I'm looking forward to the Scientologists breaking down our door. Well, yeah. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Give us, give us the recognition. Please. Please come after us. In 1991, the business was sold to its employees who formed a new company 
company called Landmark Education with Earhart's brother, Harry Rosenberg, becoming the CEO. Oh, okay. Uh, I know Landmark, when I first moved out to L.A. in the mid-2000s, Landmark was still a big thing, and they were focusing on actors. I remember distinctly a bunch of actor friends going, oh, I'm going to this Landmark training session. And I was just like, no. You heard of Est, right? (laughs) Ask your mom. It it sounds like an MLM, and it's just bad. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, multi-level so, marketing for the you, those yeah. of you not in the know. You just have to get more people to come in and, and be suckers. Yeah. Yeah. If you got no suckers, then you're the sucker. Exactly. Since Schumacher was such a fan of the S training, he incorporated a ton of the philosophy into the Wiz script. Rob Cohen said, Before I knew it, the movie was becoming an Estian fable full of Est buzzwords about knowing who you are and sharing all that. I hated the script a lot. But it was hard to argue with Ross because she was recognizing in the script all this stuff that she had worked out in S seminars. Oh, God, blah, blah, blah. Apparently, he couldn't say no to Diana Ross. That was well, no, not a lot of people could. Honestly, she was a huge star back then. Yeah, yeah, and she was a proven commodity up until this point. Very yeah. good actor, very good singer, very good movie star, and an, an insane talent. I mean, Diana Ross yeah. is an insanely talented person. Just not for this movie. No, 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 she was not. Uh, Schumacher spoke positively of the results of the S-training, stating that he was... Eternally grateful for learning that I was responsible for my life. (laughs) However, he also complained that... Everybody stayed exactly the way they were and went around spouting all this bullshit. (sighs) The speech delivered by Glinda the Good Witch at the end of the film was... A litany of S-like platitudes. Yeah, it was. But again, so was the original... Oz, it was all about going home and believing in yourself yeah. and blabbity bloops. Well, yeah, but yes. I, I mean, come on. You had the brains all along. You had the heart yeah, all along. Yeah, believing in yourself. All along. I mean, come but on. But I, yeah. I think that's a, but I'm I, just trying to be a little bit. I felt like the original Wizard, or the movie adaptation of Wizard of Oz in 39 was more about realizing your friends and family and how important they are to you. Yeah. And, and doing that. I feel like, I feel like the Wiz kind of switched that around. Okay. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I also realized that the Wizard of Oz, the original is probably the whitest movie ever made. Yes. <laughs> it is so. <laughs> Watching this movie, it's just like, holy crap, man. It is holy literally the crap. exact opposite of the Wiz. It is. It is mayonnaise. It is mayonnaise. I mean, they this. literally had to put people in full color makeup to give them colored skin. And a lollipop. Although it did have, it had small people. Or yeah. Hold? Little people? Little people. Sorry. Little people. Um, yeah, but they were all white. Yeah. And, and they drank a lot. <laughs> Yeah, they did. <laughs> there's a really, it's not a great movie, but we're definitely going to cover it. But there's a movie called Under the Rainbow. Have you seen this? No. Starring Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher. No. It takes place behind the scenes. It's a murder behind the scenes of The Wizard of Oz. Making oh, of really? The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it oh, was a huge. How have I not seen this? Huge box office bomb. <laughs> it was like the biggest well, that's bomb probably why. of all of their careers. Wow. Uh, but it's definitely, it's something, again, it's got to be crap because I liked it as a kid. Uh, but it's <laughs> hey, not everything you liked as a kid was crap. No, no, of course not. Because I liked everything as a but kid. But you liked everything. Yeah, there, was, <laughs> there I, were going to be some stinkers. If there. it was on screen, I probably loved it. Yeah. There was not a lot that I, it's true. There's not a lot that I did not like as a child. Yeah. No, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the good old days. It just occurred to me as well, because I'm a huge fan of The Wizard of Oz. I love the original movie. I love the original books. Uh, Almost every single adaptation has failed. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, the original movie was not good. Like, it didn't do well in the box office until much later. Right. Uh, the Wiz, Return to Oz, mm-hmm. Under the Rainbow. Anything associated with Wizard of Oz apparently was just... Return to Oz is an underrated movie. I enjoyed that. Yeah, but it didn't do well. No, I no, mean, no. I know, yeah, I know. Yes, I agree. I know. I agree. I think that the myth of the love of Wizard of Oz yeah. is heightened. I don't think yeah. people love it as much... Well, it, it yes. was shown every year. It, it was one of those it, movies. It didn't help any that it was on TV every year. Exactly. It became, it became a hit because just like The Sound of Music or The Ten Commandments or uh, Fiddler on the Roof, these were played ceremoniously every yeah. year. It was a big – The Wizard of Oz, they were these big yeah. Sunday night movie events yeah, yeah, yeah. that you watched every year with your family. So it, it was basically – Pushed upon us, yeah, and forced yeah. into being a hit. Not that I'm saying that the Wizard of Oz is a bad movie. I enjoy the movie, yeah. But you know, I think it was kind of agreed upon. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we all kind of loved it when we we're like, okay, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> it was all Munchausen by proxy, yes. <laughs> Munchkinhausen by proxy. <laughs> Uh, it also just occurred to me that, obviously, the original Wizard of Oz, the 1939 movie, is a musical, and I do love that movie. Yeah. Although, I don't think of it as a musical. I don't know why. Well, I mean, there's obviously singing in it. but There's like, a lot of singing in it. I don't think of it as a musical. Which is weird. It's more telling of me, I think, than anything else. <laughs> also, uh, the best way to watch it, by far, hands down, is uh, with Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah. I have a DVD. I bought it at a, a Comic-Con. Man. Uh, comic convention. That we had, did that. that. married them together. It's so good. In college, we did that with a record. Yeah, oh, yeah. An LP. Yeah. Nice. And a lot of drugs. <laughs> and it was revelatory. It's 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 really good. It's revelatory. Really, it's really amazing. All right. So although Joel Schumacher had seen the Broadway play before writing the script, none of the play's writing was incorporated into the movie. I saw it. It was fine. I just think I could do better. Even though it won Tony's, I thought I could do better. I don't dislike Joel Schumacher, but the more I learn about him, the more I don't like him. <laughs> Joel Schumacher, I've, I've met him. Oh, yeah? He's an extremely nice guy. Sure. Uh, I'm sure. And he's got some really interesting movies. Tigerland was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's... Uh, the Blast Boys was really fun. Yeah. Um, he's a much better director than a writer, probably, I yeah. think. Um, but he's made some great movies, and, you know... You're in the business for long enough, you're going to get some stinks and some hits. It's going to happen. And look, he basically killed the Batman (laughs) franchise for a few years with his bat nips. The bat Um, nips. (laughs) Look, he's just a very, he's an extremely uh, buoyant human being, I must say. Like, he's he's, he's just, he's full of joy and he's. Wants to make fun, big movies. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I respect that. I we mean, need that, you know? Yeah, Not everything yeah. has to be uh, Christopher Nolan or, you right, know, right. it's dark, gritty. Uh, exactly. There yeah. needs to be some bat nips occasionally yeah. to, to shake it up. <laughs> and that's where we get, that's, that's what we get from our friend Also Mr. going Schumacher. on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so for the music, Quincy Jones supervised the adaptation of songs by Charlie Smalls and Luther Vandross. Charlie Smalls was a musical prodigy attending Juilliard at the age of 11. Good Lord. Yeah. Smalls wrote all of the music for the original musical, The Wiz. I mean, technically, he's the creator of the show. Right. He had the idea to be like, I want to do this. Uh, he wrote the score for the 1976 film Drum, a sequel to Mandingo. Okay. Unfortunately, in 1986, at the age of 43, Smalls died while on tour in Belgium due to a burst appendix. Oh, my God. He, yeah, his appendix burst. They didn't get him to the hospital in time, and he died. Ugh, what a horrible way, painful Sucks. way to die, too. Yeah. You're just dying of sepsis. Yeah. 
My dad almost died from a burst appendix oh. when he was like seven. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, Van Dross has sold over 40 million records worldwide. A lot of babies. A lot of babies <laughs> were made to the music of Luther Van Dross. <laughs> this is so true. This is so true. He achieved 11 consecutive platinum albums and eight Grammy Awards, including Best Male R&B Vocal Performance four different times. Vandross worked as a backing vocalist in the 1970s and appeared on albums by artists such as Roberta Flack, Donny Hathaway, Todd Rundgren, Judy Collins, Shaka Khan, Bette Midler, Diana Ross, David Bowie, Ben E. King, Stevie Wonder, and Donna Summer. Wow. Those are some really different, uh, unique uh, artists. Yeah. In 2003, Vandross won the Grammy Award for Song of the Year for a song recorded not long before his death called The Dance With My Father. Long suffering from diabetes and hypertension, on April 16th, 2003, Vandross had a severe stroke at his home in New York City and was in a coma for nearly two months. I remember that, man. That was so sad. The stroke affected his ability to speak and sing and caused him to require a wheelchair. Uh, he would eventually later regain the ability to walk. Yeah, I remember when he was in his wheelchair, I think one of the Grammys or one of the award shows, they wheeled him out in his wheelchair. Yes, yes. Uh, I think it was actually when he did the uh, Dance with My Father. I think oh. when he won, they, they pulled him out for that. <laughs> Did they, um, they yeah, they just up. pulled him out. They, they were like, just get in the, get in the yeah. chair, man. Get in the chair. Somebody grab Vandross. <laughs> get him out here. Uh, Vandross died on July 1st, 2005 at the JFK Medical Center in Edison, New Jersey, at the age of 54 due to a heart attack. Ugh, that hits home. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, the fact that he had a stroke when he was like 52, that's crazy. Well, it's just this hypertension and diabetes and so yeah. many... I mean, there's a lot of actors in this movie that suffered from a lot of the same. That's true. That is true. Uh, ailments. Uh, afflictions, yeah. yeah. A handful of new songs written by Jones and the songwriting team of Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson were added to the film adaptation of The Wiz. Ashford and Simpson, baby. You Ashford remember them? Ashford and Simpson. No. Yeah. Uh, they were a husband and wife songwriting duo joined Motown, where their best-known songs included Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough. Uh, that was Diana Ross's first number one hit as a solo artist in 1970. Yeah. Uh, You're All I Need to Get By and Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, both recorded by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Ain't nothing like the real I, thing, I baby. love that song so much. Nothing like the, the real thing. thing. I think that that was like a Coke commercial. They did too. use it later, yeah. <laughs> but it's such a good song. Uh, and they also wrote Chaka Khan's I'm Every Woman in 1978. I'm Every Woman. Chaka Khan. Yeah, Rocky Chaka Khan. Nick Ashford was also a sometime actor, having appeared as Reverend Oates in the movie New Jack City. Oh, he was good, and that movie is great. I I've only seen that movie once. Oh my god, I a barely movie. remember it. You got Chris Rock. You got Ice T. Is it Wesley Snipes in it? You got Wesley yeah. Snipes, baby. You got Judd Nelson. <laughs> I was going to say Judd Hirsch, which Maybe. would have made it very different. It was like Judd Nelson's last movie before he disappeared into the well, bees yeah, and the seas. Gone. Yeah. During production, Lumet felt that the finished film would be an absolutely unique experience that nobody has ever witnessed before. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> Thank you. I was literally going to say that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, when asked about any possible influence from MGM's popular 1939 film adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, Lumet stated that... There was nothing to be gained from the 1939 film other than to make certain we didn't use anything from it. They made a brilliant movie. And even though our concept is different, they're Kansas, we're New York, they're white, we're black, and the score and the books are totally different... 
We wanted to make sure that we never overlapped in any area. Well, you did. Because all the characters are the same. <laughs> the yellow brick road is the Still same. Dorothy. Yeah. Everything's the same. All you basically did was take out a lot of stuff that made the movie make sense. <laughs> like not introducing the Wicked Witch until yes. the last 20 minutes oh of God. the movie. That was my biggest complaint about the movie. That makes sense in terms of they don't know about her. Well, it's stupid. The, the thing that they did that was dumb was they they didn't need if they didn't want to do it like the first Wizard of Oz they should have given her the stupid slippers a different way because her killing the sister automatically puts her at odds with the Wicked Witch of the East or whichever one didn't die West West yeah so so she would be looking for her right but the fact that it nothing happens until they meet the Wiz and the Wiz is like well what you have to do is you have to kill her to and then I will give you all your gifts and that's that's what I love about it is that there was no motivation other than just being like, well, to go home, I got to murder somebody. Yeah. Okay. And everybody's like, well, you don't have to do it, Dorothy. Uh, I can live without a heart, and you can live without a brain. And you don't have to kill her. Now I'm going to do it. I'll kill her. I won't ever be happy here. Yeah, with, what's so with mean? you people? I'll be happy with you, gross, grossos, <laughs> you stinky animal, and you gross stuffed scarecrow and old Squeaky McGee. <laughs> Squeaky McGee. A teeny. Oh, yeah. A teeny. Uh, this, total aside, but like, this is not, the, everyone thinks that the 1939 adaptation of The Wizard of Oz was the first. It was not. It no. It was like the 17th or 18th or oh, something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that movie, um, that book was just adapted the ass out yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. But after the big budget flop that was The Wizard of Oz in 1939, nobody adapted it until The Wiz. Yeah. Yeah, and they made it much better. <laughs> they improved upon it in every way. So they cast Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. Uh, Michael Jackson, a former Motown star and close friend of Diana Ross, was cast. Uh, by the start of development, he and his brothers, the Jacksons, with the exception of Jermaine, had left Motown for Epic Records in 1975 after the release of their 10th album, Moving Violation, though Michael had yet to release a sol- solo album since Forever Michael, released in January of 1975. Jackson 5 were huge. Yeah, they were. I don't know who Michael Jackson is. I just, this <laughs> oh. is all new research to me. So I, yeah. Well, you're going to be super happy and then you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> very sad. Rob Cohen, head of Motown Productions, thought Jackson would be perfect for the role of Scarecrow and approached Gordy with the idea, who agreed, though Lumet was harder to convince. Why? Lumet wanted Jimmy Walker, star of CBS TV's Good Times, telling Cohen, Michael Jackson's a Vegas act. The Jackson's vibe is a Vegas act. Jimmy Walker. Who's also a Vegas actor? <laughs> is a comedian. Well, look, he's not Jimmy JJ Walker a was a huge. No, he wasn't a singer. I don't know. I mean, maybe, he but could he was. Sing. But he was big. I mean, he was obviously he was huge. I mean, very well known. He was the breakout star of Good Times. He, you know, he was on Love Boat. He was on. He did all the yeah. rounds. Oh, he yeah. was a comedian that everybody loved. He was one of the big breakout comedians. Yeah. yeah, hilarious guy. I get it. He was a star. I mean. Looking back on it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but at the time, Michael Jackson wasn't very popular. No, no. He was part of a, a, a family group. He was an old child singer. Was, yeah, yeah, exactly. He was in his awkward phase. Yeah. And J.J. Walker was one of the biggest stars in the country, so I, I get it. True. Quincy Jones was also skeptical of Jackson, but after Cohen arranged a meeting flying 19-year-old Jackson to New York, Lumet and Jones saw the qualities that Cohen saw. Oh, yeah. I mean, the kid was brilliant, brilliant in the movie. He was so in it. I mean, he yes. was in every scene. He, yes. He yes. did not break character. He just seemed 
there's very few performances that I've ever seen that you just feel the joy that the performer yes. is feeling as they're doing this part. And it just seemed like he was having the time of his life. It was worth watching the entire movie to see Michael Jackson having so much fun. Yes, finally away from his brothers, finally out from under the thumb of his horrible, abusive uh, father and able yeah. to hang out and be in New York and be, an, be a 19-year-old. And be an adult, yeah. 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 Jackson's father, Joseph, speaking of, was wary of the project and saw it as a threat to the Jackson's group cohesion. It's a threat. Anything they do, it's a threat. I don't like them doing anything I don't tell them to do. Get me my belt. It's time for a whipping. Cohen moved Michael and his sister Latoya into a Manhattan apartment, allowing him to be on his own for the first time. Well, at least they got the really responsible Jackson to watch over him. <laughs> Wasn't Latoya, La isn't she younger than yes. him? Okay, yeah. Uh, during production, he became a frequent visitor to New York's famous Studio 54. Of course. Yeah. Jackson was dedicated to the Scarecrow role and watched videotapes of gazelles, cheetahs, and panthers in order to learn graceful movements for his part. He was so great. I mean... They make it look so easy. Yeah. Flipping and flopping and dancing all around. It just, it's, it's, no. it's it, in truth, it's exhausting. But the way that they move around, it's effortless. He's effortless. Yeah. It's just, you, it's also really fun to see the precursors of his amazing dancing. Yeah. And the stage show that he would eventually do. It's just, it's, it's almost like watching the origin story of yes. Michael Jackson. Yes, exactly. It's really, it's fun. The long hours of uncomfortable prosthetic makeup by Stan Winston did not bother him. During production, Jackson asked Quincy Jones, who he would recommend as a producer on an on-yet unrecorded solo album project. Jones, impressed by Jackson's professionalism, talent, and work ethic, offered to be producer of what became Off the Wall, released in 1979, then later on the hugely successful albums Thriller in 82 and Bad in 1987. I think Off the Wall might be my favorite of the oh, three. Oh, really? It is such an uh, underrated album. Off the Wall is a great song. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's the beginning. Like, Thriller's great, but that's the, you know... Michael Jackson. And I'm not a huge fan of bad. It's good. And there's some good songs. There's more bad than good on right, bad. But, yeah. but uh, Off the Wall is just, it's funky. It's fun. Nice. It's very different. Uh, and it's what got me to fall in love with Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nipsey Russell was cast as the Tin Man. Ah, the Nips. Uh, Russell was born Julius, but his mother liked how the nickname Nipsey sounded, so she stuck with it. I like Nipsey. <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Thanks for making me nipsy. <laughs> in 1952, Russell joined Manton Moreland as a comedy duo doing old vaudeville acts. Oh, yeah. This would lead to guest spots on The Ed Sullivan Show, which led to spots on The Jack Parr Show, which led to a supporting role in 1961 on the sitcom Car 54, Where Are You? Yeah, that was a pretty good sitcom. I think that was with... Uh uh, Herman Munster, Quinn. Um, yes, I think you're right. In the 1960s, he started making appearances on game shows like Match Game, Password, Hollywood Squares, To Tell the Truth, Missing Links, What's My Line, and Pyramid. That's where I just totally, because you're yeah, home yeah. from school, it's game show time, he was going to see the Nips. Yeah. The Nips is on everything. <laughs> the old Nipser. Did you, did you always call them the Nips? Yeah, when, when, we, were, when we used to hang out. Yeah, yeah. Me and the Nips. You and the Nips. We used to the play golf. It's always the Nips. Oh, yeah, man. He was the Nips. There was no other Nipsy. <laughs> He's the one and only. <laughs> okay. These appearances continued through the 80s. He would start making guest appearances on various, various Dean Martin shows like... Dean Martin Celebrity Roast, The Dean Martin Show, and The Dean Martin Comedy World. 
During the 90s, Russell gained a new audience by becoming a regular guest on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Oh, he was so great. Conan O'Brien, one of the great things he did, I, I really, he was such a different late night host. He yeah. kind of took what Letterman did and skewed it and made it his own yeah. in the most absurdly stupid yet smart, funny way. <laughs> I love yeah. him because of The Simpsons and because of his oh, own. Yeah. I'm a huge yeah. Conan friend. But he would bring back these actors of a time and right. people would rediscover, these kids would rediscover them because he would bring them on and they were so funny and he was also reverent of them because he grew up with all of them. You know, right. he was right. the same, he's a little older than me, but he would, you know, he would stay at home and watch, you know, yeah. Nipsey Russell. Right, on, you know, of course. So if I, it's just so funny because if I were him, I would do the exact same right. thing. Right, right, exactly. Because all my heroes like, I would well, have on. Nipsey Russell's available? Okay. Yeah. My favorite, my absolute favorite sketch, in Conan O'Brien, this is a total speed bump, is Bulletproof Legs. Do you remember Bulletproof Legs? No. It was one of the writers. Oh. He wasn't on very often, but he would literally just sing, I've got bulletproof legs, I've got bulletproof legs, and someone would come out and then shoot him in the chest. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he'd just scream, why, and fall down. And, and, that, and they, they did that sketch like 10 times, and uh, it, was it was literally the same. It's, it's the same thing as like the slip nuts. Did you ever <laughs> see that? And the guys come out, and they're like, where are the slip nuts? We're slipping on nuts. And, and uh, one of the guys from Parks and Rec, the guy that played, uh, the guy that was like the jerk, um, council member. Oh yeah, uh, Jimmy uh, Jam or yeah, you yeah, got yeah, jammed. yeah, yeah. The Jam, yeah, yeah. I, knew uh, I don't. Know he was one of the slipknots. But those guys were fearless, man. They went to a Slipknot concert <laughs> and opened for Slipknot, and the guys were literally like, "You guys have to run the f out of here when you're done." And it was just the most ballsy thing ever wow. to come on. That's and funny. I think they even did like a. A memorial, you know, like oh, wow, the Slipknots died. <laughs> oh, it's just brilliant, and it's just oh like God. again these running gags so that were funny. just hilarious. Yeah. So Nipsey Russell didn't appear in features very often, with The Wiz being his first feature role. He was so good too, honestly. I mean, he was great. He's a good singing and dance man. I loved him because he had a hat and a cane. I liked accessories as a boy. He was, he was like the old vaudeville guy. Exactly. Like, he was great. Ah, oh, man. And he just, his costume was so, the costumes were really cool. I, like, his oh, costume yeah. with, yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. beer can arm and. Yeah, like, was, the, the weird can, like, random cans. Yeah, and like, he was just made out of garbage. Yeah. And the same thing, like, the conceit with the scarecrow pulling right. out little quotes, being yes. stuffed with parts of that, books and stuff. That was super clever. Extremely I, clever. I really liked that. And the fact that uh, he had the nose from a, uh, a Reese's Peanut Reese's Butter, Butter Cup. Cup. Yeah. yeah, it was a wrapper from Peanut Butter Cup was, was his nose. made of garbage. He was. In the, in the nice little popcorn. Oh, yeah, the uh, popcorn. is the hat. hat. Yeah. Very great. The art direction in The Wiz was amazing. Oh, yeah, and the costumes yeah. and the makeup. Yeah, yeah. so good. Uh, Nipsey would appear in the 1986 film Wildcats, and his final feature role was reprising his part from Car 54, Where Are You, in the 1994 feature adaptation. Nice. Wildcats. Oh, man. Have you seen that? Y- yes. It's been, it's on college. It's been long. Goldie Hawn. I yes. think he played the principal of the school where she was the coach. Oh, okay. And, uh, that was the first movie with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. Oh, really? Together. Oh, nice. And then they went on to do a few more movies together. Nice. Like that basketball movie. White Men Can't Jump. That's what it is. And also that Subway movie. with White Men with, Can't Subway? <laughs> no, with, with uh, Robert Blake. Like uh, right around the time he killed his wife, or after he killed his wife. He played like the, yeah. the gross Subway guy. Yeah. And they were going to rob their brothers. Yeah. Ugh. 
That was the end. That was the last. No, it's not a good movie. Not good. It wasn't as good as the other two. No. Russell's final TV appearance was as a panelist on a game show-themed week on the final season of the Tom Bergeron version of Hollywood Squares in 2003. Tom Bergeron. The fact that they had to have a game show-themed week on a game show just boggles my mind. Well, that's weird. But they were celebrating other games. Yes, yes. Uh, Russell died on October 2nd, 2005 at the age of 87 in New York City of cancer. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered in the Atlantic Ocean. It's got to be. I think about this a lot. Like you make it to your 80s and yeah. you're doing OK. And then you get cancer. And it's like, really? I made now, it all this way? And, and then is it just like, OK, I guess this is it. This is the way to yeah. go. Well, there you go. There we go. Yay. Feel good, people. <laughs> the whiz. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ted Ross was cast as the cow- Cowardly Lion, uh, or also known as Fleetwood Coop DeVille. <laughs> Fleetwood Coop DeVille! Uh, that's a good lion. That was good. Uh, oh, I loved him so much. He's so great. Ted Ross. Had the most kick-ass mustache Oh my ever. god, Ted Ross has the greatest mustache of all time. And he rocked that bad boy during so Arthur and Arthur 2. I loved him. He was such, he's another guy, another talent crush that I had. Just larger than life, greatest mustache, greatest smile, and so effing talented. And the yeah. fact that, that I didn't even realize that Ted Ross was Mr. Mustache. Right, right. Because he was so good in this. So, and you could tell that oh, he came off of the Broadway yes, production, yes. too, because he just has that he knew, voice. Yeah, yeah. He's got the movement. He's got everything down, and the makeup was great. It just was an, it was an amazing performance. Uh, Ross, no relation to Diana, originated the role of the Lion for the Wiz on Broadway, winning a Tony for his performance. Uh, Ross grew up in Dayton, Ohio, his mother a former nightclub singer in the 20s and 30s. While in junior high, Ross, who was big for his age, would dress up and strut into the Owl Club in the Palace Theater's Midnight Rambles to see great acts such as Duke Ellington. Nice. Uh, His nightclub exploits as a teenager were not very popular at home. Uh, he also dropped out of Roosevelt High in 1915 and enlisted the United States Air Force. A lot of people did that back then. I, it's, yeah. Two years later, at age 18, Ross entered an amateur night contest at the Top Hat Bar on Germantown Street in, in Dayton. Home on furlough, he sang a cover of Judy Garland's Over the Rainbow, won $5 at night, and found his calling. Nice. After leaving the military, Ross worked his way from Great Falls, Montana. 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 Yeah, it's the little side of Montana. After leaving the military, Ross worked his way from Great Falls, Montana, to a strip bar in Los Angeles as a singer and MC. Nice. Um, I really want to believe it was Jumbo's Clown Room, but I don't well, think it was. Strip clubs weren't like strip clubs now. There were more no. variety shows. Yeah. There were more like vaudeville, where you'd have a comic come out, right. you'd have an MC running right. the show, you'd have singers, you'd have then you'd have burlesque like dancers. Burlesque, yeah, yeah. You know, and and sometimes you know topless and whatever, but it was more. You had to hide the boobies in yeah. the in the in the show, kinda. right? Right. You had yeah. to show that you had a respectable show. Less was more, right? And there was a yeah. lot of you know laws and rules against sure, public sure. indecency. His first film was the Bingo Long Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings with Motown Productions in 1976. Uh, again, the longest more. title ever. <laughs> Films that followed included Ragtime in 1981, Amityville 2: The Possession in 1982, Police Academy in 1984, Stealing Home in 1988 with Mark Harmon and Jodie Foster. That I really like that movie. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's I know if we watch it you're not going to like it. <laughs> but Don't speak for me. But it was it was pretty schmaltzy, but it was this interesting movie about Mark Harmon, I think, is going home 
to deal with the ashes of Jodie Foster, who was like his babysitter or his something okay. growing up. And they had this really great relationship. And it was like a flashback thing. And, oh, okay. Okay. And, uh, and it was good. It was really good. Okay. I think I liked it, but I think it was pretty schmaltzy. Okay. But we'll have to take a look. I'll t- man, I'm willing to give it a shot. Uh, he was also in The Fisher King in 1991. The Fisher King? The Fisher King. Yeah, it was about the uh, finding cold fusion, the Fisher King. I thought it was about a proctologist. Yes. Who was really good at fixing anal fissures. Anal fissures, yep. The, the Fisher King. Very different movie. Yes. <laughs> One of his most member- memorable roles is that of Bitterman, Arthur Bach's long-suffering chauffeur in the 1981 Dudley Moore hit Arthur, and Bisman. the 1988 sequel Arthur Two on the Rocks. Bitterman. She gets me home. I'm drunk. I'm a drunk Englishman, Bisman. <laughs> I want to make a career of being drunk. I'm going to make fun of alcoholism. It's going to be hilarious, Bisman. I mean, it was. It was. It was great. <laughs> but you couldn't make that movie today, I don't think. Uh, no. Ross was a swinger. According to Rialto Report Review with adult actor Michael Lawrence, Ross was a big swinger and used to throw a lot of orgies at his house. Oh. <laughs> uh, that that disturbed me. Unfo- I mean, I'm like, unfortunately, this watch through the whiz was a lot of thinking about Ted Ross and his big old uh, talk about mustache rides. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know that that look. I, hey, man, whatever you do is cool yeah. with me as long as you're not hurting anybody. As long as everyone's consenting. Whatever, man. Do your thing. But just thinking about him running around an orgy, just big, big, big dude, dude <laughs> big mustache. Be like, okay, oh, mo, oh boy, here comes Ted. And I want to moan and bam, 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 bam. I want to see. Oh, never mind. Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, well. In 1990, Ross played Troy Maxson in a Cincinnati production of August Wilson's Fences. That's a really great play. It is a great play. It was the first time that Ted Ross's family had seen him perform on stage since the contest in 1952. All right, I guess we'll come to this one because it's at home. (laughs) But we don't want to. If I have to hear any more about your orgies. (laughs) Don't smell my stash. (laughs) He came home to Dayton, Ohio for good in 1997 and opened Your Place, a jazz club on West 3rd Street. Occasionally, Ross sat in and sang in his club and performed as part of the Dayton Art Institute's Just Jazz series. Oh, that sounds so fun to me. I would yeah. love... It'd be like... I would. I think my, my, my greatest retirement, or what I would love to do, is open up a small like improv comedy theater. Yeah. Bar. Yeah. And... Uh, and then just have people come perform. dispensary. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd force myself upon them and, yeah. and, and be like, I'm going to perform with your group. That's you can't do anything about it because I own the club. Sounds so you, Jim. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Unfortunately, he suffered a stroke in 1998 and died from complications four years later at Good Samaritan Hospital on September 3rd, 2002, at the age of 68. Uh, that's too young. Way too young. But he lived a lot of life in that 68 years. He did, man. Whew, he did. Uh, Richard Pryor is Herman Smith, a.k.a. The Wiz. The Wiz. Uh, Pryor won a Primetime Emmy Award and five Grammy Awards. Yeah. <laughs> he received the first Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 1998. Which he deserved wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah. He won the Writers Guild of America Award in 1974. He was listed at number one on Comedy Central's list of all-time greatest stand-up comedians. Yeah. Yeah. People 
forget just how insanely oh, talented he, he was. Yes, he was huge. And he was really one of the first comedians to just really just delve, delve into all of his flaws. Yeah, yeah. And really talk about his change, you know, his marriages, right, his right. Uh, lighting himself on fire. Yeah, his, yeah. In one of his, there were concert movies, man. I went to yeah. see these movie, the, these concerts in the theater. Him talking, I know you're going to talk about it, but him talking about his trip to Africa. Yeah. It's just, he's such an engaging human being. And, yeah. and just so funny. Like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. ridiculously funny. Very, very funny. Yeah. It's just so sad because a lot of people just remember him, you know, with his MS and the wheelchair and, you know, yeah, or the, older, very skinny, always having to hold that lighter because it keeps right, his hand from, right. from, from shaking. shaking. Yeah. It's just, what a sad end. I mean, the guy survived so much and so much self-inflicted abuse. Oh, yeah. yeah. But he survived so much. And just, a, again, just a slow, debilitating march to death. Yeah. Uh, some of his Enjoy live, the whiz, everybody. <laughs> some of his live recordings include Richard Pryor live and smoking in 1971. That N-word is crazy. Yeah. Uh, is it something I said in 1975? Bicentennial N-word in 1976. Uh, Richard Pryor live in concert in 79, Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip in 1982, and Richard Pryor here and now in 1983. So all of those in the theater. um, One of of them, either live in concert or live on the Sunset Strip, is on Netflix right now. Probably Sunset Strip. That was the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, Just before starring in The Wiz, Pryor starred in his own variety show, The Richard Pryor Show, which premiered on NBC in 1977. Uh, The show was canceled after only four episodes. Pryor was unwilling to alter his material for network censors. He later said, They offered me ten episodes, but I said all I wanted is four. During the short-lived series, he portrayed the first black president of the United States, spoofed the Star Wars Mos Eisley Cantina, examined gun violence in a non-comedy skit, lampooned racism in the sinking Titanic, <laughs> and used costumes and visual distortion to appear nude. Yes, I watched these too, by the way. I need to find these because they sound fascinating. They're crazy. And yeah, it's just, I mean, the guy was just a powerhouse yeah. and he yeah. was out of control, but he was very smart. And he was also very professional and very serious about his career. Oh, yeah, yeah. In 1979, at the height of his success, Pryor visited Kenya. Upon returning to the United States from Africa, Pryor swore he would never use the the N-word again in his stand-up comedy routine ever. The same year that The Wiz came out, Pryor was also in Blue Collar, a crime drama in Paul Schrader's directorial debut. Uh, Schrader actually had a mental breakdown on set and seriously reconsidered a career in Hollywood. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, the critical lambasting of The Wiz after release did not affect Pryor's career as he became the first African-American actor to garner a $1 million paycheck in 1980s stir-crazy. Yep. Pryor would pass from a heart attack in 2005. I'm not going to go deeper into Pryor now because God knows we're going to cover him a lot more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just – and it's – you know, it was a pretty small role. Yeah. I think – you know, it just seemed like he was kind of uh, Barry Gordy's luck charm. Look charm oh, yeah. Because he oh, was yeah. in every single one of his movies. Yeah. <laughs> Lena Horne was cast as Glinda the Good Witch of the South. Uh, Horne's career spanned more than 70 years, appearing in film, television, and theater. Yeah, she was Hollywood royalty. Uh, Horne is African-American from both sides of her family. Uh, her mother was a traveling actor, and her father was a gambler who owned a restaurant and hotel, running a gambling racket out of it. Nice. That's uh, so, like, 1930s. It's so... 1930s. Uh, there was so much more about her that I did not include. Like, he eventually left the family and went to Pittsburgh. Like Went out for a pack of smokes? Uh, yeah. and then But she, like, ended up living with him at, like, the age of 17 in she, Pittsburgh. She brought him the smokes. Yeah. 
She ended meeting her first husband there. Anyway, Horn joined the chorus of the Cotton Club at the age of 16 and became a nightclub performer before moving to Hollywood. Horn made her first screen de- appearance as a dancer in the musical short Cab Calloway's Jitterbug Party in 1935 at the age of 18. Okay. Horn made her Hollywood nightclub debut at Felix Young's Little Truck on the Sunset Strip in January 1942. Horn was the first African-American person elected to serve on the Screen Actors Guild Board of Directors. She was a pioneer, and it's so hard for the pioneer. Frustrated with Hollywood's racism, she focused more on her nightclub career. She said she was... Tired of being typecast as a Negro who stands against a pillar singing a song. I did that 20 times too often. She was blacklisted during the 1950s for her affiliations in the 40s with communist-backed groups. She returned to the screen playing Claire Quintana, a madam in a brothel who marries Richard Widmark in the film Death of a Gunfighter in 1969, her first straight dramatic role with no reference to her color. Interesting. Yeah. Horn married Louis Jordan Jones, a political operative, in January 1937 in Pittsburgh. On December 21st, 1937, their daughter Gail was born. Gail would go on to marry Sidney Lumet, who directed The Wiz. Weird. She would marry Lenny Hayton in 1947, a musician, conductor, and arranger who was white. Her interracial relationship made for some difficult times. Yeah, because it was 1947, and it was illegal in a lot of states. It was. She admitted she had married Hayton to advance her career and cross the color barrier in show business, but... Learned to love him very much. They would separate in the early 60s, but never divorce. Horn had affairs with longtime heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, musician and actor Artie Shaw, actor Orson Welles, and director Vincente Med- Vincente Minnelli. Hmm. Horn announced her retirement in March 1980, but the next year starred in a one-woman show, Lena Horn, The Lady and Her Music, which ran for more than 300 performances on Broadway. Yeah! She then toured the country with the show, earning numerous awards and accolades. I'm retiring, I swear! Horn continued recording and performing sporadically into the 1990s, retreating from the public eye in 2000. She died of congestive heart failure at the age of 92 on May 9th, 2010. Oh! But that's a damn good run! Damn good run. She was incredible, and boy, did Sidney Lumet not do her a damn bit of favor no, in that did performance. Not. That could have used some directing. Good Lord. I'm pretty sure the first thing I would have done as a director was remove the star babies behind her yeah. during that long five-minute take of yeah. her singing. A lot of babies hanging <laughs> in the... Star babies. And that's, again, it's like, why does she have a bunch of star babies? Again, there was no explanation. But my God, it looks like she's about to explode. Yeah. It looks like she has a bomb strapped to her heart. And if she doesn't sing at 11 with yeah. her, everything yeah. in her exploding out, then she's going to blow up. It is just the most. It is but, such uh, a disappointing. It's And I blame Sydney Lumet. I don't blame her at all because no, she's no. up there in wires trying to dance she's doing, and yeah, move her yeah. thing and trying to make this a, an exuberant. And uh, energetic performance right. with all of the limitations that she has. And boy, oh boy, boy, <laughs> oh boy, does she, she get the short shrift on this one. Yeah. I will have to say that that was the most disappointing thing in this movie is, is the way that, I mean, she deserves so oh, oh, much better. Yes. Yeah. Sydney. Mabel King was cast as Eveline. Eveline? Is that how you say it? Evel- yeah. Eveline? Eveline. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, King originated the role of Eveline on Broadway and reprised it for the movie. God, she was so good. So commanding. The way she just, like, sat down was so (laughs) amazing. I mean, it was just like she stomped around with such authority. It's just so funny to think of her as Mama. Yeah, yeah. From uh, What's Happening. What's Happening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's such a, a, a very 
not meek because Mama was a very strong woman. No, but but she reserved. was yeah, and yeah. not as extremely physical. No thing. No but man, she moved, and man, she was in command of that body, and she oh, was yeah. just so fierce. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie is that musical number. I think it's just. Uh, I would have enjoyed it more if it had been an hour earlier. Okay. I get you. You're right. <laughs> I mean, it, it would have been more fun to that. see yeah. Mabel King in this more. Agreed. She was a very strong part of the film, and bringing her in earlier would have done, you know, we didn't need eight hours of them easing on down the damn road, <laughs> man. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> the role on Broadway earned her a Drama Desk Award nomination. Uh, King was raised in Harlem and started a career as a gospel and nightclub singer. She did not start acting until her mid-30s in 1966 when she played the role of Maria in the national touring play of Porgy and Bess. I have the album. Oh, yeah. And I She's think it's that. actually her. It's yeah. probably her, yeah. Uh, the following year, she played the role of Ernestina in the Broadway musical comedy Hello, Dolly. Hello, Dolly, and then hold Dolly, and then where you belong. Give it up. Then in 1972, she acted the musical film Don't Play Us Cheap, written and directed by Melvin Van Peebles, which yeah. went unreleased until the following year after it had been performed on Broadway as a stage play. Melvin Van Peebles is one of the first true independent directors. Yeah. He's very much like Cassavetes. Yeah. He uh, did a lot of really crazy experimental films probably his most famous is sweet sweet bad sweet sweet backs badass song yeah there's a lot of s's in the title if you actually look at it had his son mario van peoples in yeah. it in a very compromising weird sex scene when he was like 14 years old but it's a it's a crazy movie you should see it uh his son did a document uh, not a documentary his son did a making of the movie yeah. starring himself i think as, yeah. as melvin van peoples yeah. which is really great uh, that same year, in 1972, Mabel King played the Queen of Mirthia in the horror film Ganja and Hess, starring Marlene Clark and Dwayne Jones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Ganja and Hess. Neither so I. I. need to see it. Uh, Dwayne Jones, though, is fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I love Dwayne Jones. I and, like Ganja. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. In 1976, she was offered the role of Mabel Thomas on the sitcom What's Happening? <laughs> Her character often used the catchphrase, this is true, which she said to her children when she tried to prove a point to them. She was such a great mother. Like, yeah, yeah. she not only was, she was Raj's mom. Raj was the straight-laced, right. smart one, right. you know. Dwayne, hey, 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 and rerun. Oh, he was a dancer, but he was a chub. <laughs> Um, but she was, and then they had D, this smart alecky sister of Raj. Yeah. Uh, but man, she was such a great, loving, understanding mother. You know, she'd yeah. beat his hide when it needed to be beat, but she'd also pull him into her bosom and give him that hug right. when he was feeling bad. And I just adored her. I loved that show, and I loved her on that show. King played the role from 76 to 78, but due to disagreements with the direction the creators wanted to take the series, she left What's Happening in 78 after two seasons. Yeah, they changed it around a lot. Yeah. The following year, she appeared in the film The Jerk as the mother to Steve Martin's character. I was born a poor <laughs> black child. She signed on with then-Hollywood agent Ruben Mallorette, who negotiated her reprised role of Mama Johnson in the made-for-TV movie The Jerk 2 in 1984. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
<laughs> Her last two movie roles were Scrooged in 1988, starring Bill Murray, and Dead Men Don't Die in 1990, starring Elliot Gould. Nice. Uh, Good movies. Yeah, both of them were very good. King was diabetic, and in 1986, one of her toes was amputated as a result of the disease. Oh, God, it's the beginning. Oh, here we go. This is just the most heartbreaking story in Hollywood. We've talked about it before, but it just kills me every time. In 1990, King suffered a stroke and entered the motion picture and television country house and hospital in Woodland Hills, California. In 1991, King's diabetes resulted in the amputation of her left leg. In 1994, her right leg was also amputated. King would also lose one of her arms to diabetes. And she finally died on November 9th, 1999, at the age of 66. So young. I mean, she's going through all of this stuff. She's, yeah, she started when she was like In the late 50s, yeah. yeah. I mean. Oh, God. You got, look. Diabetes is no effing joke, people. No. It is no. not a joke. And it's you, not a, a big person's disease. No. You could be any size. It, it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't it, matter. It's the myth of like, oh, I'm too skinny to get diabetes. Oh, yeah. That's not true. Anybody can get diabetes. 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 You <laughs> 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 uh, got diabetes. diabetes. Eat Quaker Oats and yeah. get, get, check your diabetes. Um, but yeah, it's like, don't ignore that. I've had, I have it. It's in my family. Yeah. Um, Mine too. But, you know, watch out because that thing, that thing will get you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thelma Carpenter was cast as Miss One, the Good Witch of the North. Oh, Thelma. She's so great. She was on a lot of different sitcoms. She was on a lot. She would show up on tons of stuff. And I almost didn't recognize her in this. She's so... No, no. As a child performer, Carpenter had her own radio show on WNYC in New York and won an amateur night at the Apollo Theater in 1938 at the age of 16. That's crazy. Yeah, a lot of that happening in this production 60 years later she would be honored and perform on the 1993 all-star nbc tv special apollo theater hall of fame hosted by bill cosby don't drink my drinks yeah don't uh in the 1970s thelma started appearing in sitcoms including barefoot in the park in 1970 the paul lynn show in 1972 the paul lynn show <laughs> i've got a wife and a, and a daughter and a son who's a big meathead whoa <laughs> And The Love Boat in 1981. Uh, the Wiz was her first feature film. Wow. She'd appeared in some TV movies in the early 70s, but this is the first feature. Her final media appearance was in an episode of Cosby in 1996. Mm. The, the Not the Cosby show, but the weird sitcom that came after it. And not the Cosby Mysteries, which was another... Which I think was in between the two i don't know cosby had shows all the time they all tried to recapture the magic of the cosby show and none of them did nope carpenter suffered cardiac arrest and died in new york on may 14th 1997 no teresa Merritt was cast as uh, shelby gale aunt m oh yeah had that amazing song at the beginning well she's also another one that was in everything yeah and so talented uh, born in Emporia, Virginia, Merritt appeared in many theatrical productions but gained fame later in life when she starred as Ma Rainey in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, for which she earned a Tony Award nomination, and The Wiz, in which she replaced Mabel King as Eveline in On Broadway. Nice! Uh, unfortunately, she left The Wiz, citing the role's harmful effects on her voice. She then starred in the television sitcom That's My Mama. That's My Mama! That was a great show, too. Uh, yeah, and th- I don't know if it was the same song in the... 
in the musical as it was in the movie. I don't know. I should have put that down, but I don't know. I, I'm thinking it probably is because it's one of the better songs <laughs> in the production. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that would be tough to do every night on your voice because it was like. Oh, yeah. Bam, bam. Yes. I, yes, I do believe that was the same. Yeah, that would be hard. That don't be tell hard. me no lies or. Uh, yeah, something like that. I don't remember. All I remember is uh, Brand New Day after that, which went on for 45 minutes. Have a brand new day. That last, like, eight minutes, it's just them high-kicking, high-kicking, high-kicking. There's a lot of kicking. They were having a brand new day, baby. It was just so much high-kicking. No bad news. Don't tell me no no bad news. It was was definitely, I could definitely see how that that would screw your voice up. Yeah. Her most notable film roles were Aunt M in the 78 film version of The Wiz, uh, Mrs. Crosby in the 77 film adaptation of Neil Simon's The Goodbye Girl, and Juanita in the Adam Sandler comedy Billy Madison. She was great. <laughs> she was great. That's a guilty pledge. Oh, yeah. Teresa Merritt also appeared alongside Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton in the film adaptation of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Oh, not great. <laughs> oh, her last media appearance was in 1998 in an episode of Cosby again. Kill a lot of good Beginning to think there is a pattern emerging. No, don't drink that. You're too old to drink it. Uh, but Merritt died of skin cancer on June 12, 1998, in the New York City borough of the Bronx. Yeah, awful. But yeah, one of our first skin cancer deaths. <laughs> Put it on the board. Ugh. Uh, so principal photography began on October 3rd, 1977, and concluded on December 29th, 1977. It took place at Astoria Studios in Queens, New York. Nice. The decaying New York State Pavilion from the 1964 New York World's Fair was used as the set for Munchkinland. Uh, Astroland at Coney Island was used for the Tin Man scene with the Cyclone as a backdrop. Yeah. While the World Trade Center served as the Emerald City. I knew it! I pointed it out. I said, that's the that's Twin the Towers, Towers, Adam. Emerald, Emerald, yeah, World Trade Center. The only reason I knew that that was uh, the New York State Pavilion, the Munchkin Land for the World's, the New York's World's Fair, was because of Men in Black. Oh, right. <laughs> and them using it to... F- it's actually a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. The Emerald City scenes were elaborate using 650 dancers, 385 crew members, and 1,200 costumes. Yeah. Well, they should have done more with that because... <laughs> It was basically, I get it, you know, it's just the whims of the whiz, but him saying, I don't like green, house red. And then then he would sing the red song and they would all strut around wearing red. It wasn't (laughs) a lot of really great dancing. It was a lot of strutting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And, but I did really like the, uh, the camera that walked around. (laughs) So weird. I like that. But it it worked. It fit in with the art production it was cool i mean it was cool looking and but again it was you got all these dancers you got all this spectacle maybe do a little bit more energy or something (laughs) with it rather than just strutting around singing about green or red or gold i agreed wouldn't be caught dead red Dead red. yeah oh don't get old gold (laughs) i can just imagine the costume designer being like i'm sorry they're going to wear these costumes for like two minutes? Yep. We need a green one, a red one, and a gold one. Uh, exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, the Wiz proved to be a commercial failure as the $24 million production only earned $13.6 million at the box office. Yikes. Well, the, I think the, the big thing is 
people weren't spending $24 million on movies back then. Star Wars in 1977 cost $3 million. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. $3 million. Yeah. It was a big, it had a lot of money. It had a lot of money. Uh, yeah. Star Wars. (laughs) Though pre-release television broadcast rights had been sold to CBS for over $10 million, in the end, the film produced a net loss of $10.4 million for Motown and Universal. How? Um, I think because it's not adding in, uh, marketing. But still, you're not spending another $10 million on marketing back then. It lost money. Weird. You know how Hollywood does their books. Yeah. It, so it <laughs> quoties lost money yeah, on quoties. Yeah. Ugh. That is the most. Yeah. Talk about the Bermuda Triangle, baby. You try to find out. You try to find out what movies made back then. It was like tighter than the CIA. Oh yeah. Oh well, yeah. it didn't make us. It didn't make us money back. It's been playing for four years. It's made three hundred billion dollars. <laughs> oh no, no, that's no. no. Yeah. Yeah. On paper, it's very different. Yeah, how very much, different. You must have got to pay the projectionist. It's you a know, lot. Taxes and, you know, popcorn tax. Yeah, popcorn tax. At the time, it was the most expensive film musical ever made. Shocking. No one had made a movie more than $24 million. No. Or um, I should say a film musical more than $24 million. The film's failure steered Hollywood studios away from producing the all-black film projects that had become popular during the black exploitation era of the early to mid-1970s for several years. No, the guys were just waiting for that failure to be able to, see? Yeah. See? We can't make black movies. We're going to have to get rid of them. See? Ugh. It just makes me sick. I can hear them. (laughs) I can see them with their cigars. Ugh. Uh, critics panned The Wiz upon its October 1978 release. Many reviewers directed their criticism at Diana Ross, whom they believed was too old to play Dorothy. Okay. Now, they didn't do her any favors no. with her hair, her lack of makeup, yeah, and her and costume. the fact that they kept shoving the camera in her mouth and her nose. Yeah, She, to me... This movie could be about a developmentally disabled woman... Who is being shunned by her family and goes into a room, and this is the world that she creates in her autistic mind. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's kind of the way that they made her look or feel. It's just they didn't give her any... No, there was nothing in the script to give her anything to actually shoot for. No. To, like, like, you know, want to go get. They dressed her like she was a temp. Yeah. Going to an office. I mean, there was nothing... It was so I mean, generic. Her, there her was big revelation at the end of the movie was that I need to quit being a teacher and go out in the world. Yeah. Like, what? What? That's est for you, baby. Uh, <laughs> Those third graders don't need you. Get out of here. Well, that's the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, her mom was like, "You've been you've been teaching kindergartners for three years. That's way too long. You got to teach high school kids. And then you can move out and start your own life." And it's like, well, as far as I know. You don't get paid that much more for teaching high school kids no. than you do for teaching young kids. No. And if you enjoy teaching young kids, then why would you want you, to change? You get paid more by staying in the same job for a long time. Anywho, <laughs> I mean, that's another thing about trying to stay away from the original. It's the ending has no punch. It's just she clicks her heels and then runs into the house and the sh- it's and over. It. <laughs> There's no like, where you been? Nope. Or what's been going on? I, the fact that. The whole conceit is dumb. The fact that she goes out to get 
Toto in the snowstorm and gets pulled into some weird snow cyclone. No tornado. And blown by the witch. No NATO. Over into the, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Dirty. Into the land of Oz. Yeah. And also, it's a little gross that Oz was kind of like this trashy ghetto. You know? it, it was like an apocalypse had happened. Right. It just seemed a little bit too kind of, uh, you know, that's really the African-American this experience. Is, this is, <laughs> you know. Oh, there's an African-American version of Oz, and it looks like crap. Yeah. Well, I mean, until you get to the Emerald City, which is, yeah. you know, nice and everything. But I don't know. It's just, again, there's a lot of missteps, Yes, I think, that they made. And the number one is... Diana Ross. And Diana Ross isn't bad in this movie. She's not a bad actor. She's not a bad singer. It's just she sticks out like a sore thumb. It's a yes. middle-aged woman yeah. doing – it's really sad that yeah. this poor middle-aged yeah. woman who's being ostracized from her family because she doesn't have a boyfriend and she doesn't want to get – doesn't want to move out of the house. But even then it doesn't – it seems like she's kind of putting that on herself. Well, they're putting it on her and she's putting yeah. it on herself and she's, you know, she's – But she's – she is so she sticks out not just because she's this middle aged woman, but because she's the middle only aged. she's only thirty three. She's o- she's the only character that does not show any joy in the movie, right? Like at all, or like any it's just, real growth. Every time she started singing, I just tuned out. I was just like, okay, there's sad sack again, being sad. And again, it's not her fault. Yeah, I blame the director. Yes, and you know, her performance was buoyed because of the great. Supporting performances from Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, and Ted Ross. Yeah. But they all had such cool, defined characters. And yeah. They had cool costumes, and they had cool backstories, and they had a lot more interesting things going for them right. than right. poor Diana Ross, who had nothing but a crap haircut, <laughs> no makeup, a crap costume, and, and no real – this is the problem with Est – being at the center of your movie. <laughs> if the whole thing is about self-improvement, then who cares about your friend? I mean, she's, right. like you said, I, I'm miserable here, even though you guys yeah. are my best friends in the world now. I, yeah. I could never yeah. be happy here with you, Grossos. You know? Yeah. And it's just... She didn't actually learn... I mean, she did she learn anything at the end? I don't know. She learned how I to mean, kill. She didn't... She learned how to murder. I mean, yeah. I mean, she didn't. she didn't, like, suddenly be like, hey... You're right. I'm the. I need to do it myself. Like there's, it just wasn't. It was. Well, I mean, in the original, it's like, well, you were there, and you were there, and you were there, and it's like, right. I'm, I love my family again, and it, and I understand the importance of, right. You know, being part of the family and not. Yeah. You know, it's just it. It. She learned something in that journey, and you're right. I don't think Dorothy Gale in this one learned very much. She just kind of went on this. Adventure that she didn't appreciate. No. She didn't appreciate the people that sacrificed so much for her. I mean, they flattened the Tin Man. Yeah. And they pulled all the stuffing and cut up to pieces. That really cut disturbed in me. Half. That when I was a kid. Whew. That scene when they smashed Nipsey. Yeah. And they cut Michael into a bunch of pieces and they were pulling the old <laughs> tiger by the tail and <laughs> lion by the tail. That just freaked me out. And there's so much, so many weird little things that freak me out in the movie, yeah. like those puppets that got big, the, the fly, whole, yeah. quote unquote flying monkeys. Oh my god, those weird flying monkeys that look like some <laughs> something out of R. Crumb. It was my favorite part of the mouths. movie. 
because they then, were so weird. And then how did they they change? They did from being part motorcycle, part well, they, monkey. They changed during Brand New Day. Yeah, when when all of them stripped off their weird outer skin. Well, they didn't get to. They still had. Well, their we weird... just didn't. We just didn't see it happen. They, no, but they still had monkey faces. Right, but they lost like the they they. I think they were charmed into be, being or hexed or whatever into being part of the motorcycles, mm. and now they weren't. Why were they flying monkeys? They didn't fly. They were motorcycles driving monkeys. Can fly? They fly down the road, Jim. Uh, anywho, regardless, Diana Ross would never do another feature film after this. Well, I don't blame her. She took a lot of flack, and I don't think it was fair. Look, yeah, I will fault her for forcing herself on this production, right? And the, her being in it was a strike against it right. at the onset, not right. because of her or her talent or whatever, because we needed a fresh-faced 19-year-old girl to experience yeah. this, right. not a woman in her 30s, you know, yeah. having a, a, a quote-unquote midlife, midlife crisis. crisis. <laughs> um, and that was that, – that's – you know, I, I will blame her for forcing herself on this role – but I also don't think that she did an abysmal job. I think she did no, the best that she could no. do in the circumstances yeah. that she was in. I don't think she was directed very well either. No. And I think that's – I think Sidney Lumet was way over his head. Yeah. Didn't know what he was doing. He was the wrong man to direct this movie. And Schumacher at the time, because of his est obsession, was the right. wrong man to write the adaptation. Yes, yes. Diana Ross was the wrong person to star in it. But everybody else was great. They did a great job. Michael Jackson? Yeah. Amazing. So most critics agreed uh, that what worked so well successfully on stage simply did not translate well to the screen. Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz, did not think highly of The Wiz, stating, The Wiz is overblown and will never have the universal appeal that the classic MGM musical has obtained, and they didn't even kill any little people. (laughs) The decision to hire Sidney Lumet, a dramatic filmmaker without any prior experience directing musicals, was criticized, with many critics believing his style was unsuited to the material genre. They're not wrong. The cinematography and production design, which replaced the fantastical Oz settings of the stage version with gritty urban landscapes, were likewise criticized. Yes. It, 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 again, it's, it's lazy. Yeah. It's lazy, stereotypical bullshit. Yeah. Critics also questioned the decision to cut large portions of the original score, in some cases substituting original compositions that were regarded as inferior. Yeah. Another just huge misstep. Exactly. They should have brought in... The people that wrote the music in the book to add a, to adapt to adapt, yeah, it to to the film. It's just, it just was like we said, bad choice after bad choice. A lot of a lot of creators thinking that, well, this is great, but we can do it better. Yeah, no, you can't. Yeah, y'all you, learned you a you lesson didn't. the hard way. Jackson's performance as the Scarecrow was one of the few positively reviewed elements, with critics noticing or noting that Jackson possessed genuine acting talent. And provided the only genuinely memorable moments. Of the results of the film, Jackson stated, I don't think it could have been any better. I really don't. In 1980, Jackson stated that his time working on The Wiz was my greatest experience so far. I'll never forget that. And if you don't believe it, you're ignorant. You're being ignorant, Adam. (laughs) That's such a weird spot on Michael Jackson. (laughs) Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert gave the film some of its most positive reviews on sneak previews, proving that Siskel and Ebert make no sense. But... Siskel called it superior musical theater. Said Diana, Diana Ross was superb, terrific, and came across as a real star, but had reservations about the film's heavy message. 
Okay. Ebert praised other cast members and numerous technical aspects of the film, saying it was fun and in the <laughs> great tradition of the American musical. Great. I, I mean, I'm glad that they liked it. I, they apparently saw things I didn't. I did. As a kid, I thought it was fun I, and a good musical. Gene Siskel, on the other hand. What the hell, man? He's just... It's like he just throws things at a dartboard and goes, well, I like this movie today. I, this, again, that's what was kind of interesting about them is because just when you thought you had them pegged, they'd right. come out and be like, I like the Wiz, and be like, wait, what? <laughs> Despite the critical panning, the film was nominated for four Academy Awards. I get it. Best Art Direction, losing to Heaven Can Wait. I, I don't... Look, Heaven Can Wait was good, but I, I don't agree. I think that I, it was I, better. I 100% don't agree, especially having seen the movie now. The art direction was one of the best things about this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and definitely better than Heaven Can Wait. Sorry. I, I like Heaven Can Wait. It's a fun movie. Yeah, but, like, but there's yeah. nothing like... Crazy about no. the cinematography, except what the football art scenes, direction. the art direction. Yeah, what? Yeah. There's nothing. I mean, no. what yeah. heaven? Because it was I, all white. Yeah. Uh, best cinematography, losing to Days of Heaven. Okay, the cinematography was not very good. No, it it's was basically not. we're just going to stick the camera in one position, let all the crap happen, I, and then we're going to call cut, and we're going to go home for the rest of the day. Don't understand how it got nominated at all for cinematography, but uh, best costume design, losing to Death on the Nile. I don't agree with that. Also, should have won. Yeah, agreed. Look, agreed. Period piece, a period piece will always win the costume design, unless there's like some crazy yeah, yeah. sci-fi thing or something. Like but the, yeah, yeah. And I get it. I mean, it's hard to recreate stuff, but this, the the costumes for the Tin Man and the Scarecrow are, are amazing. Right. You know. And oh, they, Dan, yeah. And for the witch, Evil Lynn, Evil Witch, yeah, and all of them. I mean, all even even the weird Glinda and the weird Star Babies. Like they all looked really good. <laughs> yes, they all had very unique costumes that were very original and very they, they worked very well for yeah. the for the story. The only one that was really bland <laughs> was, Dorothy. was Dorothy. It was the worst. I mean, it, it really was like they grabbed somebody out of Woolworths. Yeah, and were like starring a movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, can I get some makeup and hair? Nope. Which. Which, again, would be fine if at the end she had an actual story arc. Yeah. Like if she ch a character arc and changed in some way. Or just some way to make her look younger. And Diana Ross is a beautiful woman. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And they did yeah. everything they could to not make her beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Adaptation Score, but lost to the Buddy Holly story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, given the fact that they scrapped like half the songs and then... Didn't they start Gary Busey? That was good. I was pretty hot about Holly. I had glasses on when I sang. Oh, yeah, I won. I won it for them. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be in the Wiz. I want to play the lion. <laughs> Couldn't be. Well. Uh, so, yeah, they obviously now it's become a cult classic. A lot of people watch it on Thanksgiving because it obviously yeah. was a Thanksgiving, you know, at the beginning, the big, big with the 40,000 people eating dinner together. I still really enjoy this movie. I, 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 concede that that love comes from a nostalgia i have yeah but yeah. it also there's a lot of things to like yeah a lot of things not to like but if you want to like this movie you can the the, the michael jackson nipsey russell mabel king richard pryor ted ross lena well not lena horn unfortunately uh, Teresa Merritt, you know, all of these people give outstanding performances. There's some really fun music. There's some really good dancing. Uh, if you want to just watch a messy musical, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, going with no expectations. Uh, the best, though, is, is uh, you hit the nail on the head. Watch the movie to see 
essentially the origin story of Michael Jackson. Yes. <laughs> like, it is so fun watching him oh my God. have so much fun. And his dancing is impeccable. The guy is the most graceful human oh, being. Incredible. The way he moves is just so effortless. And if you want to see just a... Look, Ted Ross, Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, Mabel King, they're having a blast. Yeah. They're doing a great job. And you want to see a really understated... I mean, it's not big, but it's a very understated and very impressive performance by Richard Pryor as oh, the yeah, Wiz. Yeah. There's a lot of emotion there, and there's there's a lot of depth to his God, his character. So sad. Just very so sad. sad. So there's a lot of things to like. Is it the best musical? No. Is it the best <laughs> musical that we're going to cover this month? No. no. <laughs> Probably the second best, unfortunately. But... Uh, <sighs> Oh, you'll see, baby. You will see. <laughs> I, I, I will say I didn't hate this movie. Uh, there's very few movies I hate. I, I didn't really like the movie very much. Yeah. I found a lot of things I liked about sure. it. Sure. But overall, there were definitely parts of it that I wish. I wish the movie was shorter. Yeah. I wish that they had rewritten the script uh, so that it was a little closer to the actual story. Sure. The but the, the staying away, I'm doing the quotes. Yeah. The staying away from the original. Well, they didn't. Yeah. They yeah. just kind of stayed away from all the stuff that made it make sense. Right. Or they gave it depth. Right. Or they gave it meaning. Gave it, made it an actual story. Right. <laughs> and they substituted all that with this est nonsense and yeah. made it more about a personal journey, which, you know, kind of negates what happened to the Scarecrow, the Tin Man? I don't know. And the Lion. I don't know. You know? I mean, not even 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 the Wiz, because I mean, at least in the original movie, like she's like, well, we're gonna take the balloon, yeah. and then he goes away, and it's yeah. like, okay, well, he made it. Yeah, you know, I mean, like it's just abandoned. The world she left them in is really kind of crappy. It's almost like the world doesn't exist without her, and yeah, well, and you know, if it is all in her mind, or if it is I, all some sort of, I'm gonna believe it's in her mind. <laughs> well, it it doesn't. It's just all. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And also, I, this bothered me about the original Wizard of Oz, too. The whole fact that all she had to do the entire time was click those heels, and somebody right. could have told her. That witch in the beginning could have told her, you want to go home? Click your heels. Yeah. I, I'm kind of pissed at that witch. Yeah. For yeah. leaving out some very, very important information about those shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even yeah, even more so in the in the original because it actually is Glinda at the beginning that goes, yes. "Hey, what's up? Yeah, I'm gonna leave now. You're gonna almost die 15 Ooh, times. I'm not gonna tell you. And by the way, you could have gone home yeah, the entire time. <laughs> yeah. The power was within you. <laughs> well, thanks for telling me, Glinda. And you're not that good a witch. How about yeah. that? You're kind of a bitch witch. <laughs> <laughs> you're the so-so witch, not the good witch. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well, All right. Well, that's it. Uh, God knows this is going to be our longest episode ever. Well, it's a lot to talk about. But look, if you if you if you saw it as a kid, watch it again. I'm curious yeah. to see what you yeah. think. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, but you like musicals and you like Michael Jackson, yeah, watch it. There's going to be the thing about all of the. We're not always going to cover the blockbusters. We're not always no. going to cover the best movies. They're all going to be Mississippi burnings and, or, or, <laughs> or Godfathers. But there's always something redeemable yeah. in everything that we cover, and there's always something worth watching. We wouldn't cover this if we didn't think there was a, was no reason to watch it. Right. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to watch it. Yeah. A lot of them aren't probably the reasons why they want you to watch it, <laughs> but it's definitely a fun watch. It's a great, another great 
Sunday afternoon, yeah. rainy yeah. day, pop on the whiz, smoke a little if you smoke, yeah. have, have a, a couple of yeah. drinks if you drink. You know, it's an easy, fun. Cook a big turkey and a giant ham. And a giant ham and all the fixings. And just enjoy yourself. It's a, it's a great little escape for a couple hours. Yeah. And again, if you're Richard Pryor, Michael Jackson, Nipsey Russell, Lena Horn, any of these people, you're going to have a little bit of fun. Yeah. Now, you thought this one was bad, people. <laughs> Next week, we're going to Xanadu. <sighs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's going to be a show. <laughs> get your shoes on. Get your, get your roller skates on, people, because we're going to Xanadu. I think, that, I think that the myth of the love of Wither... I, I think that... This is a tough sentence to say. <laughs> it is, it is. I think that the myth of the love of Wizard of Oz... Yeah. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. WKRP in Cincinnati, already in progress.